Hello and welcome to On Geopolitics, the podcast that looks at geopolitics and historical context with myself, Ali Ansari, and my colleague, Suzanne Rain. And today, Suzanne, we are going to be talking about elections, aren't we? We sure are, Ali. So this idea for this podcast came from Ivan Kratsev, who's chair of the Centre for Liberal Strategies in Sofia in Bulgaria. And I was at a roundtable event last weekend in Cambridge, and Ivan gave the opening talk where he reminded us, because we all ought to know already, but probably don't, that 2024 is going to be a big electoral year, and not just for the obvious reasons, which we'll come on to, I'm sure, at the end. Because next year, about roughly 4 billion people are going to have elections. And this is going to affect a whole series of geopolitical issues, Ali, that you and I are following and that everyone else is following with great anxiety. And and the way he set it out, I mean, he picked five key elections which are going to particularly impact how Russia's war on Ukraine ends. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought, although it's five key elections, there's actually a whole load of other elections going on as well. So my suggestion to you is that we will <laughs> we will try and discuss a lot of these elections, probably, as you say, more superficially than we would necessarily want to. But but I think what we're what I'm aiming to leave everyone with is this impression of a whole load of spinning plates, which are all spinning sort of separately, but actually maybe, I don't want to say there's some kind of mechanical version of this allegory, isn't there, where they also, they're slightly sequential and they impact each other. And in some instances, they really impact each other. And then I think what should come out as we start talking about it is that there are some really important sort of connecting themes or um, common themes between them, which I would suggest are populism, uncertainty, misinformation, manipulation, and in particular, and really importantly, division. And elections always mean division in a way. They are a point at which divisions are exacerbated. And what the impact of that might be for all of us in 2024. So that's the ambitious start point. And it is ambitious, is it not? (laughs) It is ambitious. However, I mean, you're quite right. I mean, I I like the idea of the swimming plates, actually. And this idea that, you know, what we're dealing with here is a moving equation, so to speak, you know, Mm. that and I mean, obviously, some elections, as, as you say, will have uh, be more impactful and more consequential than others, but they will all, you know, potentially have a an impact of one sort or another. Although I suppose we ought to be clear that having an election doesn't necessarily mean you're democratic, does it? I mean, uh, we will be talking about a number of elections, I think, where I think the result is known ahead of the vote. So that's probably something that we'll need to uh, flesh out and define and make clear that what we're dealing with here is a is a political process, but not necessarily a democratic political process. Yes. So let's, and also while we're on that subject, of course, that's what this manipulation and m- misinformation that we've that's seen right. actually for the last, almost over the last decade is such an important part of that, because even the ones that you would say are democratic are struggling to maintain transparency and fairness against an onslaught of what started out as being PR and media campaigns and has just become a systematic attempt to undermine one party in favour of another party in ways that are really difficult to evidence. So that's a gross oversimplification by me. So let's start, Ali, with election number one, clearly not completely democratic, 
the election of a new president in Russia in March 2024. I think I, think I would say not democratic at all. But anyway, I well, mean, yes. <laughs> well, Putin will... He will probably, contest something, will he? I mean, but he will probably... Will there be an opposition? Will there be an opposition, do you think? I mean... I think the issue here, and this is what Ivan Kratsov said, actually, so I must credit him with this, but Putin will win. But elections are about something else in Russia. So that for him, it's a means of seeing how his system functions. And if you think about it, with a few very obvious exceptions, there have been very few personnel changes over the last 18 months in Russia, even though the war has gone very, very badly for them. So how does he, that question of how he creates the narrative which enables him to be popular is quite an interesting one to follow. And the discussion that we had at the roundtable, which I thought was really interesting, is that he's not going to go to this promising people victory. He's going to be promising them endless war against an oppressive West. So in its sense, the fact of this election is cementing that division between Russia and the West because his narrative will be, we are being attacked, we are being oppressed, I am the leader who is standing for Russia against adversity. So in these sort of elections that are intended to, to validate his autocracy, if I can put it that way, a sort of an authoritarian populist exercise, what really matters is the level of turnout, I take it. Exactly. And I think Again, this is Ivan, not me, but I mean, his, he said the aim will be to get 60% turnout, of which 80% is for Putin. And what happens in the course of that is essentially a testing of local tools of manipulation of population. So he will identify where the system is weak and how to strengthen it through this process. But in a way, that's only one aspect of the Russian elections that's interesting. And the other aspect is a geopolitical one which is the pressure it puts on Zelensky to hold elections in Ukraine. Because elections are due in Ukraine at the end of March 2024. And if Zelensky doesn't hold elections in Ukraine, and Putin has held them, I mean, it's, it's incon very inconvenient for Zelensky that Russia is holding elections in March. Because then if Ukraine doesn't hold elections, then Russia can say, we're democratic and you're not. We're more legitimate than you are. You say you're fighting for democracy, but Ukraine is under a system of martial law. Under that system of martial law, elections can't be held. Mm. So the Ukrainian parliament would have to amend that law. So that's one difficulty for Zelensky is what it looks like. And I don't know if you recall recently, American Senator Lindsey Graham went to Ukraine to say, you have to hold elections. You have to show you've got democratic legitimacy. And Zelensky came back and said, I totally get that, but you have to acknowledge how impractical that would be. You know, we have troops at the front line, we have six to seven million people who aren't even in the country, any six to seven million who aren't in the country anymore. It's going to cost approximately $135 million to hold elections, but at the same time, we're fighting a war. Every single thing that we have needs to go into the war for our existence. We're fighting for, I mean, that terrible irony that we're, mm. we're fighting for our democracy, but that fight means that in practice, if we were to hold elections, we wouldn't be able to guarantee free and fair elections, and not least for those provinces in the East where the Russians have just last month held elections, you know, under 
what have been widely held to be, you know, sham conditions. So I'm just reading exactly what it says here. And uh, I mean, it is being criticised very widely for hundreds of reported irregularities during the election, including threats of violence, voter blocking, vote buying, you know, evidence of vote rigging widely documented, voting stations showed voters casting their votes into clear plastic boxes while being flanked by armed military personnel. So that's what's just happened. And the US has said it will never recognise the Russian Federation's claims to any of Ukraine's sovereign territory. But so what we've had is essentially Russia holding elections in a part of Ukraine where Ukraine would be unable to hold elections because it hasn't reclaimed it militarily from Russian occupation. And if Ukraine has elections and doesn't include these what does that say about the territorial boundaries of Ukraine? So that's all really, really complicated. I mean, I, I'm i not as convinced, I have to say, that he would have to hold an election because I was thinking, while the Americans held an election in wartime uh, during the Second World War, I'm, if I remember correctly, Britain didn't. And a number of countries in the throes of war didn't and held their elections over for when you know the, the major fighting certainly was over. So I think he'd have a case. I mean, I think he, I think Zelensky has a fairly strong case to say that, you know, we need to hold off until the situation is a bit more stable. And I'm not, I mean, to be honest, I mean, would anyone really be convinced apart from perhaps Putin would be talking to the Russians themselves, but I don't know if anyone else apart from the Belarusians would be convinced that the election procedure in, in Russia had been even remotely free and fair. I mean, so, you know, I don't know if that leverage would work. I don't know. So I think, Obviously, Ali, you mm. have an obvious point. So there, there is a problem with the narrative if Russia yeah. has them and Ukraine doesn't have them. The additional driver stroke problem is the involvement of the US senators in this who are pushing for Ukraine to hold them. And so, so that's, that's the narrative. It's creating yeah. a dynamic that Zelensky has to then you know, come back against in a way. And, you know, who knows? But the thing that we need to watch is that these two electoral cycles, Russia and Ukraine, are unhelpfully <laughs> aligned and mm. therefore naturally driving off each other. And how the West then, I don't know, responds, positions, you know, the, that engagement at the moment by Russian senators who are arguing that Ukraine must hold elections in order to show that it's democratic is in itself creating a driver. And I know what you're going to say. This is not mm. all the all the Americans. It's not the Americans, but it's an involving process that we're going to see play out over the next six months. But isn't it nonsensical of the Americans or whatever American senators we're talking about here to equate elections with democracy? I mean, I, you know, it's an aspect of, but democracy is so much deeper and wider than that. You know, just because, you know, as as we've just discussed, effectively, I mean, Putin is an autocrat and authoritarian populist can hold an election in order to validate his popular uh, what he considers to be his, his popularity but he's far from quote democratic i mean I, it's it's a bit depressing that an american senator would push this narrative and i i hope zelensky can push back against it actually so this is going to bring us on to the whole other stuff which we're going yes. to i think do it in a denouement which is american politics but lindsey graham's a republican but he went with elizabeth warren and richard blumenthal who are both democrats and in mm. one of his tweets he says I realise the security environment to conduct an election would be challenging. However, I cannot think of a better investment for the stability of Europe than helping Ukraine survive as an independent, self-governing, rule-of-law-based democracy. I would encourage all of Ukraine's allies to help provide the financial and technical assistance to support this effort. Mm. 
So that's his argument, which is essentially, uh, yes, not everywhere is democratic, but it, if that's what we're fighting for, then we have to show that we're fighting for by doing it. So I'm not going to offer a judgment. This is simply for the purpose of information. But I think what that brings us on to, Ali, neatly, mm. is democracy in the rest of Europe. Yeah. And there's an unhelpful thing for our purposes here, is that there are two of the critical elections which are happening in 2024 are actually mm. happening in the next three weeks. Oh. And depending on when this podcast goes out, Ali, they may or may not have already come to a, a resolution. Mm. So I don't know which way they're going to go at all. But I think we should nonetheless mention the elections in Poland on the 15th of October for the same and the Senate, the, the Parliament and the Upper House, and in Slovakia, which will be no later than the 30th of September this year. So we don't know who's going to win, but they are both noteworthy for the essentially that real tension between the kind of centrist liberals in very varying different ways and far-right parties who are not the same as pro-Russian parties in this case. So the, the Polish Law and Justice Party, which is now trying to win a, a record third term, I think you could call it you know, properly conservative party, but it is not Russia supporting. So that's a clear distinction there. But it is populist and it is already taking decisions that are geopolitical actions with a view to influencing the electoral outcome. So for example, what we saw over the spring and summer, the Polish position about not allowing Ukrainian grain exports through Poland was because there's a very large rural farming community who form one of the key electoral bases for the Law and Justice Party. So he's got to get them on side. So that's Kaczynski, who's the head of the party. So that's the sort of thing that is going to shape political positions. But the thing about Poland that I think is really interesting because it's mirrored elsewhere and in I mean, it's really noticeable that it's mirrored in India and South Africa, which we can come on to, is that the opposition to the populist party has had to form a coalition of lots of other smaller parties. So in this case, it's Donald Tusk, who may be familiar to you from EU days, but he's now leading an opposition party, civic coalition, civic platform, whatever you might call it which is essentially trying to bind together a group of much smaller parties, you know, and including so Liberal Civic Coalition and the New Left, to see whether collectively they can get a greater share of the vote than the Law and Justice Party. And that is exactly what's happening in India, where I now I've got to remember exactly what it's called. But again, the Congress Party has come to an agreement with a whole load of other parties. It's the Indian National Developmental Inclusive Alliance, which by great chance spells India, which is essentially saying the only chance we have to defeat populism is by coming together in one great coalition. And exactly the same driver is happening in South Africa, where again, there is an opportunity possibly to overturn the you know, majority that the ANC has held for nearly 30 years. But the, the implication of this is that if these smaller parties are able to sort of succeed, it would be a very unstable coalition, I suspect. Mm. Yes. I mean, what it's clearly telling us is in, in each case, the populists, even after in each case being in power for a very long time, 
are still in the strongest political position. And by being in those positions, of course, they're able to shift the narrative. They're able to build support through division. So Kaczynski, the head of Law and Justice Party in Poland, has called Donald Tusk, head of the Civic Coalition, the personification of evil. And this is really interesting. Because, strong. Well, you know, do you remember we had that conversation about narratives, you know, yeah. the, the sort of anti-narrative, which uh, you know, Sam Bin Laden and Putin are using. And this is lots of themes in the populist narratives. But Kaczynski said in a, um, actually it wasn't Kaczynski, it was Mateusz Morawiecki, who's the prime minister, who did a speech in Katowice. And he warned that the opposition was preparing a woman's hell featuring rapes, robberies, murders, and young, rootless immigrants storming the borders. You know, so you've got all those kind of sort of hooks again against grievances that are very powerful for the populists to use. And, and while I'm on that subject, in Slovakia, which was the second one I mentioned, the elections there again are imminent. So we may well know who's won. But, but do you think as significant as Poland or not? Well, the same dynamics and different. So the right. same dynamics is that you have a challenging populist leader. And in this case, it's the leader of, I'm sorry to say this, but this group, I, it's a Slovakian political party. There will be experts on Slovakian politics. It isn't me. But the kind of populist right-wing pro-Russian party is called Smer, S-M-E-R. And it is being led by a man called Robert Fico. And he has basically, I mean, he, he led Slovakia from 2006 to 2010, and again from 2012 to 2018. And Smer stands for left-wing direction, but they campaign on this clear pro-Russian and anti-American message. And the thing that is kind of quite unpleasant about this is that the current Slovakian president, Susanna I don't know how you pronounce it exactly, Kapotova or Chapotova. I don't know. Yeah, she's not standing, is she? She's not standing because she's saying, I haven't got the strength for another six years of this. And that's a real pity because she would have been a strong contender in the campaign. But she's basically said, I've had enough. I've had enough of the attacks. You know, she and her daughters have been targets of hate campaigns. They've been accused of being American agents and conspiring with George Soros. FICO said foreign funded NGOs have already selected a new president. So, so there's all this sort of stuff going on, which is, which is again, deeply unpleasant. So this is, this is complicated because the, the situation in Poland and Slovakia is not the same, but what's happening in Slovakia is part of this wider trend to be more forgiving towards Russia, yeah. which we've seen obviously in Hungary. And also, you know, there's the sort of populist party skeptical of intervention in Ukraine, which is also coming out in Germany, France, and Spain. And the, the sort of argument that is being made is that if Smer becomes part of the government, in fact, FICO has actually said, if Smer is part of the government, we won't send any arms or ammunition to Ukraine anymore. And he's opposing EU sanctions on Russia, questions Ukrainian military's ability to force out the invading Russian troops, and wants to use Slovakia's membership in NATO to block Ukraine from joining. Uh, so, so that's a real problem. And it's particularly a problem for Ukraine because Slovakia has been 
really strong supporter of Ukraine so far. So it was the second NATO member to agree to give its fleet of Soviet-era MiG-29 fighter jets to Kyiv, and it also donated an S-300 defense system. So this is potentially really disturbing, depending on the outcome, which may be known by the time we publish this, this podcast. But Ali, I think then that the other bit that was interesting, Globsec, which is a Bratislava-based think tank, so directly relevant to Slovakia, it surveyed last March Slovak respondents, and 51% believe the West or Ukraine are responsible for the war, and half saw the U- United States, well, which is 51%, saw the United States as posing a security threat for their country. And they're members of NATO. Yes, and they're the most distrustful of the US. And then Bulgaria was second with 33, which is a lot lower. And Hungary was third on 25%. So there is clearly a dynamic in Slovakia, which is interesting. But now, Ali, I'm going to ask you to talk about Austria. Well, I mean, Austria is probably more interesting in some ways because we sort of think of Austria far more in the, the Western camp. But I don't know if you noticed, I mean, uh, actually quite recently, the former Austrian foreign minister, I think, decided to up sticks and move to St. Petersburg which was uh, was sort of quite quite interesting in terms of the an, an indication of how people are saying you know Austrian politics has become penetrated or influenced by sort of Russian influences so what you're seeing in Slovakia is disconcerting but then one might say well it's Slovakia I don't want to be dismissive of Slovakia but it's not Poland or it's not some of the larger countries but Austria I have to say is a little bit worrying and we have legislative elections coming up in uh, in Austria. And of course, the concern here is that you're going to get, again, political parties coming in, often, you know, not with majorities, but with, you know, with sufficient numbers of MPs who can then influence the direction of travel in terms of policy towards, again, as you say, the Ukraine war in Russia. Mm. And there seems to be a lot. Of, I mean, there was... Uh, Although Austria is, of course, neutral. It is, but it's a major player in the, in the EU, isn't it, really? I mean, it, what we're talking about here is a lot of different dynamics. And the dynamics yeah. are, you know, one, the relationship with the EU. Because, I mean, when we were talking about Poland, I mean, of course, a number of politicians have made great hay about being anti-EU. Mm. I mean, that's basically the dynamic. Now, of course, they've developed a new strand of being sort of anti-Russia, and they can sort of bind that. The, S- the Slovakians clearly are developing a sort of an anti-EU and anti-NATO and anti-American uh, sort of slant. But the Austrians, I mean, it's just this idea of Vienna being a bit of a hotbed of, how should we say, Russian infiltration. And we, we've we known for a while that, you know, Vienna and Austria have sort of been a, yeah. a, a sort of very receptive in a sense to what we may term as Russian emigres or something. But it, it's in some ways has become a bit disconcerting that you know, a relatively significant player, I would say, in the whole EU setup and the Western alliance of one sort or another is uh, tilting, shall we say, or has the potential to tilt in such a way towards a sort of non-Western leanings or something, or Russian leanings. And I think that's going to have, you know, I don't know what the, again, we'd have to see what the, the land was after the elections and what the, um, you know, what the balance of the parliamentary seats are. But again, it's an indication of, of the direction of travel, I think, which is which is what's worrying. And what, well, what's interesting, Ali, I'm just looking at the timings of these, because we were talking about the spinning plates and you know, which happened mm. when. So the Austrian elections are on the 9th of June 2024. So this is quite a long time in the future still. Yeah. But at the moment, the Populist Freedom Party are on course to win, but who knows. But also from 6th to 9th of June 2024, we have EU elections. So at the same time, really, and those elections take place in all 27 member countries of the European Union, and they decide which parties 
and therefore by extension which individuals in the parties hold key positions in the EU institutions. And currently, the Pan-Continental European People's Party, the EPP, is leading in the polls. And that's a centre-right party. So Ursula von der Leyen, the current president, is from the CDU, Mm -hmm. German CDU, which is a member of the EPP. Although, really interestingly, although she was the party's, what they called, Spitzenkandidat, so the the party that wins the greatest number gets to choose. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So she was there chosen, but she does not hold a seat in the European Parliament. And there is at the moment some debate about whether she could credibly be a candidate to renew her term as president of the European Commission without running for election in the European Parliament. So that's a kind of outstanding question mark, because if she did, she would have to campaign for the CDU in Germany in the European elections. But the other thing that's happening, besides all this centre-right stuff, is the rise in the polls of the right-wing and Eurosceptic parties, which at the moment, and again, we're still a long way out, are set, according to polling analysis, to surge at the expense of the centrist parties. So you would end up with the right-wing European Conservatives and Reformists, the ECR, becoming the third biggest group in the European Parliament. So that trend that we're talking about at a national level, and if you think about it, For example, voters in countries such as Italy, Finland and Greece have increasingly elevated more conservative, more right-wing parties. So that would then be reflected at a European level and that would influence who gets chosen to do the big EU jobs. There's an awful lot of unknowns in there, but it will be going on at the same time. But don't they tend to vote for people who are sort of pushed back against what they consider to be the European Commission and the and the sort of great, you know, the Brussels uh, sort of uh, governmental structure. So what they tend to do is vote for either left or right, principally right, it would seem to me, uh, wing parties that are very Eurosceptic. I mean, that that's what they tend to do. Uh, just in the same way that, you know, UKIP seem to do remarkably well in, in European elections here. Yes. Don't necessarily reflect the political makeup within domestic politics in that sense. But in the context of European politics, they tend to push back against what they consider to be the aggrandizement or the overplaying of the hand of Brussels. So that's sometimes a setup. And again, I mean, it goes to the heart of this idea of elections as not actually being terribly helpful, because what people are voting for is a protest vote. It's not actually a vote that's actually going to do anything constructive, as far as we can see. It's there to vote for people who basically are just going to say no, isn't it? Well, I think that for me, the important line out of this at the moment is the question of democratic legitimacy in the EU Commission. So, for example, if Ursula von der Leyen doesn't stand for election herself, Mm. is it democratically okay for her to be president of the European Commission? So that, in a way, that tension that you're talking about, the driver behind choice of vote, there's a risk that in their selection of people to run the commission, the EU further exacerbates that problem. And that's why whether or not von der Leyen runs, you know, it, it, it will all become quite important to see how that plays out. I'm conscious we've got a lot of the world still to go through, Ali. Should we talk about Ireland and Britain before we move further afield? Well, I mean, the Irish case is obviously, well, I mean, in in, in Britain, I think obviously we have the domestic political side. I think that's fairly well known between a potentially resurgent Labour and uh, how that will alter the political landscape after 13 years, really 14 years, I suppose, of Conservative stroke coalition government. 
and what that will mean in terms of our relationship with Europe and the wider world, of course. I mean, it will be resetting some of those relationships. I don't know how far it will go, but uh, certainly we can even see that. As of recording today, I see that Keir Starmer has said something about having a slightly deeper relationship with Europe, which I think is the direction of travel. I mean, I think that's the way things are going. Ali, can I just interrupt on that, just to be clear? Neither Britain nor Ireland must have elections in 2024. They both must have them by March, April 2020. Actually, I think it's slightly earlier in the UK's case. I think in the UK, they have to have it. I mean, the last election was December 2019, wasn't it? So they have to have an election. January 2025. Yeah. 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 Ireland has to have them before March 2025. But the other thing relevant to Ukraine is that the Labour Party in the UK has Mm. been absolutely clear that the policy towards Ukraine will be continuous. So they do not have a different foreign and defence policy when it comes to supporting Ukraine as it fights Russia. Ireland is, I think, for those of us who aren't Irish, quite complicated, but also really interesting because it's the first time that it looks like Sinn Féin have a realistic possibility of being the majority party. Mm. Do you want to say some more about that? Well, I mean, this is interesting because, I mean, for the first time, so Sinn Féin basically emerges as, you know, modern, our modern Sinn Féin party is basically the political wing of the IRA, uh, basically was never actually really did very well in elections until uh, Jerry Adams was replaced by Mary Lou MacDonald, who um, I discovered, quite interestingly, studied English literature in Dublin. So she's obviously the new face of Sinn Féin, and she's done very well in making Sinn Féin a sort of more acceptable politically. But what's quite interesting is the way in which Sinn Féin has also managed to advance its electoral prospects, because the other parties in Ireland have been basically rejected by the voters. I mean, there's no love lost, actually, I have to say, uh, between Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil and Sinn Féin. But it seems to be also that the electorate are somewhat going tired of the older parties as well, and therefore yeah. are, are, are rushing to put their ticks in the Sinn Féin box. Now, the interesting thing here, of course, is that, and this goes to electoral politics everywhere, and you know, we've seen this in the UK too, just because people put a tick in the box for a particular, particular party, it doesn't mean they're actually for the things that that party are standing for. It could be they're against the other parties. So this is in a sense what you're saying. So there is this sort of anticipation, uh, anxiety in some quarters, obviously, excitement in others that Sinn Féin getting a majority of the seats in the Northern Ireland elections and in uh, the Irish Republic will mean that unification is pretty much on the cards and is coming imminently. But of course, this is not the case, because when you look at wider polling in, in Ireland, there's actually less enthusiasm, shall we say, or interest in actually pursuing unification at this stage. I mean, I think, you know, there's a sort of an element in the Sinn Féin uh, manifesto, although I was reading about this, that they didn't they didn't highlight the unification issue as a major issue in their manifesto last time. So it's an interesting dynamic there. I think people uh, who don't dig deeper into the sort of dynamics of that electoral politics in Ireland will assume that what we're seeing here is an inexorable march towards the reunification of Ireland. In actual fact, I think Sinn Féin will have to play it a little bit more subtly than that because a lot of questions will be raised, particularly as to the financial viability of reunification. So that's going to be interesting, but it will certainly change the dynamic and it will certainly change the sort of way in which people perceive Irish politics. I think it will certainly cause more tensions in the North. But I would say to people, you know, you have to wait and see. I mean, you really do have to wait and see how that plays out. 
because what you see on the surface and what is going you know under the surface could be quite different things in geopolitical terms though ali so if mm. i was doing election interference and i wanted to make life really hard for the uk mm. i would be doing a whole load of stuff to create division in southern ireland and aiming to create additional support for Sinn Féin, for example. So just as we had the UK's Intelligence and Security Committee concluded that the first case of Russian interference in the UK democratic process had been the Scottish independence referendum, mm -hmm. followed by the Brexit referendum, you could see that this is the sort of area where somebody who's looking and saying, how can we make life difficult for the UK? The election of Sinn Féin, would be one clear, identifiable, deliverable that I would be picking if I was a Russian. And there's a whole load of things which are really interesting as well for the Irish-American relationship because Sinn Féin have said that one of the things that they would do is recognise Palestine, which would make that tension with America. It would create a different dynamic in the that relationship. That would be interesting. It was also incompatible with neutrality, really, but I, that's nonetheless, I yeah, think. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I mean, I'm struck by you know what you're saying, that basically Putin likes democracy everywhere except in Russia, because he, he can he can basically get in there and manipulate and divert. But that would be interesting. I mean, if Sinn Féin does that, I, I doubt they will, actually. I mean, I doubt they would. I think if they ever, you know, manage to achieve power on that scale, they will be very, very cognizant of the need for a continued American support. Yeah. And it's just, it's just all of these things. I mean, what one of the, as I said, the, the clear themes running through these elections is how division is created, how populations are manipulated. So exactly as you said, even if we're calling this democracy across the whole gamut, how parties get elected in democratic processes is becoming harder and harder to really sort of control. So just, I know now we've talked for far too long about problems in our own backyard. I really do want us to just note they're really significant elections in India and South Africa and in Taiwan. And Indonesia, by the sounds of it. And Indonesia. Sorry, I've just forgotten to say that. And also, Ali, there are significant elections in one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, at least nine African countries, of which South Africa, I think, is the most significant just because it is this turning point for the ANC. So Cyril Ramaphosa, again, we've seen mm -hmm. both he and President Modi really positioning themselves on the world stage. And a part of that is about obviously positioning yourself as a great leader for your country. In South African case, I mean, the coalition against the ANC has been really clear about the problems that face the country at the moment. I mean, corruption, economic decline, the terrible problems with electricity supply. So there's a very strong Mm -hmm. sort of groundswell of discontent. The problem is that it's still possible for the ANC to form a coalition. There's a, there's a party called the Economic Freedom Fighters, which is currently polling about 10% of the vote. And they're sort of a Marxist-Leninist party influenced by the thoughts of Franz Fanon, who are essentially talking about unilateral confiscation of white properties and things like that. So that, that's not easing tensions, I suppose. So that is one to watch, and that's going to happen probably in May 2024, South African election. And India is happening April or May 2024. I'm not sure the exact date. But again, you see Modi is campaigning to be re-elected for his third five-year term. 
The Indian electorate is over 600 million people. And as I said earlier, the only response really from the you know, once mighty Congress party led by Rajiv Gandhi is to form this 28-party bloc to try and coalesce a group of completely different parties, the Indian National Democratic Inclusive Alliance, which is going to work out seat-sharing arrangements to try and counter this incredibly powerful forward momentum that Modi has created, and, and most particularly, of course, in the G20. So Taiwan uh, elections actually very soon, uh, 13th of January 2024, where the current president, Tsai Ing-wen, who has overseen a movement to a more assertive policy vis-a-vis China, kind of a little bit pro-independence, but obviously always being very mindful of not pushing too far, she can't stand because she's um, done too many terms. So she is standing down. And what that means is that the field is slightly more open and you do have basically a contest between her party, Democratic Progressive Party, which is independence-leaning or assertive against China, and then the other parties who are not pro-China, but who advocate an approach to China, which is more about friendly relations, which enables Taiwan to maintain a status quo. The catch here, by the way, when I was looking up uh, issues Mm. of Taiwan, which I thought was quite interesting, is that a number of the parties don't want to declare Taiwanese independence because it exactly. would implicitly require the recognition of communist China, which they don't want to do. There's a whole load of things, which is why the main opposition party, which is the KMT, have persistently said it's better to basically go along with this as it is, maintain the relationship. Yeah, the ambiguity is important. Ambiguity is helpful. And I think it's too early to say how that's going to play out. But Obviously, the DPP win, we can expect more assertive policy. If the opposition wins, whichever shape it ends up taking, because there has been a sort of spanner thrown in with a new independent candidate who's also sort of advocating a less assertive position towards China. So that may divide the opposition. Who knows? And then Indonesia, again, we've got this situation where it's all pretty open at the moment. The elections are in February, but again, you have. Indonesia is the world's third largest democracy. It will hold the planet's biggest one-day election next year with more than 200 million voters and 1.75 million members of the diaspora going to the polls to elect the president and vice president, as well as legislators and councillors at national and regional levels. So it's a huge exercise in democracy. And actually, I think it's, it's a really interesting example because... Indonesia has shown that it is capable of having peaceful transfer of power through elections, which didn't used to be the case in your and I memory. So that's hopefully a success story. And talking of that, now this is the climax, talking of peaceful transfer of power in elections, Ali, we (laughs) then have the American elections uh, in November. The the elephant in the room is obviously the United States, because what happens in the United States will have an impact, undoubtedly, on the rest on the rest of us, but also the rest of the world, I think. And, you know, we have an election, obviously, as we know, between uh, two rather elderly gentlemen, one who seems to be somewhat more robust than the other. And obviously, this situation where there's a very real possibility that certainly Trump will be the Republican nominee uh, in the election coming up and what we're going to see is a rerun of Trump versus Biden. But as people remind us in the last election, because of COVID, Biden could basically campaign from his basement. 
Uh, now Biden will have to get out there and campaign. And there is a certain amount of anxiety that he won't be able to handle it really as well as he did last time, and that it may expose some of his frailty. So there is a genuine anxiety, actually more than I had realized among American colleagues, that Trump stands a realistic chance of winning, which is not something that I had originally thought was probable. I thought it was possible, but I didn't think it was probable. But the issue is, is that every time, as someone pointed out, every time he gets indicted on some charge, his popularity goes up, which must say something about the electorate. But one would assume that when he's put up against Biden, the majority of the American electorate will, 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 um, well, I don't know, will, 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 will not vote for Trump. I don't think we can assume anything at all. So again, it's over a year away. I know, but American elections, I mean, American elections have this have this tendency of being like intense for the entire year, don't they? We're going to end up talking about it for the whole year. And none of us are informed enough to say really which way it's going to go, except that at the moment, either outcome is messy. Uh, and I thought rather than have a debate between us about who's going to win, because we can't possibly know, I would just read something from a speech which Abraham Lincoln gave to the Young Men's Lyceum of Springfield, Illinois, on the 27th of January, 1838. So a long time before the Civil War. And he says, basically, we should expect that America, because of our wonderful geographical situation, are not going to be attacked by an invader which comes from overseas and conquers us. So at what point should we expect the approach of danger? By what means shall we fortify against it? No one's going to come from overseas. We shouldn't expect someone to come and take us by force. So he answers, if danger ever reaches, it must spring up amongst us. It cannot come from abroad. If destruction be our lot, we must ourselves be its author and finisher. As a nation of free men, we must live through all time or die by suicide. And I think, Ali, that's where we should end our podcast this week. And <laughs> I encourage everyone. That's a, that's a good quote. It's a fantastic quote. It's a fantastic speech. I'm going to write something about it, actually, because I think it's not as well known as it ought to be. And it just, I think it, it's a terrific lens through which to view all democratic elections over the next 18 months because of this subversion that is happening because you know because of social media because of the populism because of of how people are seeking to win elections that we're all struggling a little bit with maintaining the free and fair elements of it with maintaining rational debate in the face of actors who are seeking to stir up division uh, so good luck to all of us. And uh, <laughs> I think it's definitely a rich vein of discussion for another podcast, actually. We always um, say that, yeah. Is, but, it, but it is. I mean, I think you, you've hit the nail on the head with that quote, and it's, a, it's something to make us think rather deeply about the way in which democratic societies are going. Lovely. So thank you for listening. Thanks for the chat, Ali. And thank you. Uh, we'll see you again next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.